I invite you to remain standing for prayer. Father, what a joy it is to reflect upon the reality of standing before you forgiven because of Christ's work at the cross. Thank you for his ongoing work as our high priest, even today, seated in the heavenlies at your right hand. Thank you for our Bibles to instruct us, to teach us that we can grow in a greater confidence than ever in our relationship with Christ. It's in his name that we pray, committing this time of preaching to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to, in your minds, to go back with me to the summer July of 1961, Green Bay, Wisconsin, the Green Bay Packers are on the field for their first day of practice. Many of you are familiar with the moment that's going to happen on this afternoon, which you might not remember or even care about, but what you might not know is that it has been a long off-season for the Green Bay Packers as they came to training camp, they came with a bitter taste in their mouths because uh, the year, the fall before, they had suffered a, a crushing and heartbreaking defeat in the final minutes of the fourth quarter in the National Football League championship game against the Philadelphia Eagles. Of course, this had been on their mind all season long. They showed up for practice this hot July day in Green Bay. Yes, it gets hot in Green Bay in the summertime They show up for practice and they're ready to work. They're ready to start again, eager to advance to their their game to the next level and to get this taste out of their mouth of their loss. Their coach, Vince Lombardi, a name many of you will recognize, had a different idea. It's in his best-selling book entitled When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi, that author David Marinus explains what happened when Lombardi walked on the field that July afternoon in the summer of 1961. Dave Marinus writes in his book, he took nothing for granted. He began a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming that the player's were blank slates who carried over no knowledge from the year before. And he began with the most elemental statement of all, and this is the one you'll recognize, and he held a football up in his right hand, and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. Lombardi was coaching a group of three dozen professional athletes who, though they had lost in the championship game before, had played the game all their lives I am confident that they knew that that was a football in his hand. So what was he doing? As Lombardi holds up the ball, as he begins practice, as he focuses the men and says, this is a football, surely it was driven by frustration. It was driven by disappointment of the previous loss. And I think it was intended to bring a loving shame upon them. Gentlemen, this is a football, and if we're going to win games, we must master the fundamentals of the game. This is a football. I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 5 this morning, and I want you to have the mindset of being on the field that July afternoon in Green Bay, Wisconsin, as Lombardi holds up the ball and says, this is a football, because we sense in our writer here in Hebrews chapter 5, as we make our way through this uh, incredible epistle, we sense that there's some frustration, and we sense that there's some disappointment, 
And it seems that what he's going to do in our text today is he's going to hold up, as it were, a spiritual football and say, church, this is a football. He's going to lovingly shame them to try to wake them up. Let's read our text, and I think you'll understand what I'm saying uh, with this kind of mindset today as we begin our study. We're in Hebrews chapter 5, and uh, I want to begin with verse 9 so that you remember what he's been instructing on them, uh, what he's been instructing to them in chapter 5 so far. Verse 9, and having been perfected, that would be Jesus, he, Christ, became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing." Our writer, who we don't know his name, is writing a group of believers. I believe there are a group of believers who are a small church. I think they knew one another well. We don't know who exactly the recipients of this book were. It's named Hebrews because we believe they were a group of Jewish or Hebrew believers. We know from the, from the challenge of the writing of the epistle so far that, that he's been calling them out to stay focused on Christ they have a tendency to to be desiring to go back to their old ways and and in their minds they're wondering is Christ greater than the prophets of the old testament is Christ greater than Moses is Christ greater than the angels is Christ greater than the Aaronic priesthood and so he has started in chapter 5 to begin to teach them why Jesus Christ is supreme that's the title of our study in Hebrews the supremacy of Christ the writer wants to show them that Jesus Christ is our high priest and he's supreme above all other priests, even Aaron, who was appointed as the first high priest. So he has started in teaching them in chapter 5 about the significance of the role of Christ as our high priest. He then touches on this strange character that we referenced and talked about two weeks ago, that we were introduced to two weeks ago, named Melchizedek. He was in Genesis chapter 15, and and uh, Abraham met him there, and he worshipped him, and he paid tithes to him, and he was appointed by God, Melchizedek was, as a high priest. And so when you look at verse 9, and he's coming off of this teaching that he's introduced in chapter 5 about Jesus Christ being a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, he says that Christ was perfected. He's the author of our salvation to all those who obey him. And he's been called, Jesus has, as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, appointed by God is going to be his emphasis. So you think... Being of the line of Aaron is impressive, but this high priest, Jesus, was appointed to this role by God. And the writer of Hebrews wants them to recognize that Jesus is supreme in his role of high priest, even above Aaron and all other earthly high priests. But then something happens to him. He's writing, he references Melchizedek again for the second time in the passage, and it's as though he wants to teach them But then all of a sudden, a frustration seems to boil over in the writer. He's been teaching about this role of high priest. He's been referencing Christ along with Melchizedek. And then he says, and let your eyes go to verse 11. 
this Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, though, since you have become dull of hearing. And then all of a sudden, he detours, and he begins to warn them to wake up in their spiritual life and to not fall away from their devotion to Christ. And then in chapter 7, he's going to go back to Melchizedek. So as he's writing them, he's distracted himself, and I sense in him a frustration, a disappointment. I want to teach you these deeper things of the Lord and of Christ. But you're dull of hearing and you can't get it. Let's read our text. Did we already read our text? Have I read the text yet? Did I read 5 through 14? 11 through 14? I absolutely didn't remember whether I read the text or not. I've read it this morning a couple times already. Please excuse me for that. Amen. I need a little prayer out there this morning. So let's just pick it up at verse 9 again. I think I intended to read the text and started talking. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food." For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Let's just stop right there. Um, we are actually going to pick up chapter 6 in September. Um, when I, two weeks from today, when I speak on Father's Day, I'm going to begin a six-sermon series on prayer and, and the priority of prayer for our church. We have other interruptions through the summer. We'll look forward to wonderful ministries from our pulpit. But today is going to conclude our study in Hebrews until September. As people are coming and going, I thought it would be helpful for us to just pick up our study in the fall. Well, there you have it. Can you sense in him this Lombardi-type frustration where he says to them, I, I should be able to teach you these things, and I can't because you're dull of hearing. And in fact, though you should be teachers, you're, you need to go back to the beginning and start again. And so I believe what we have here is the writer of Hebrews boiling over with a little bit of, I consider it, loving frustration. What I want us to do to tear down the the passage today is to recognize this as a frustrated teacher and why he's concerned. And as we unfold the reasons for his frustration, I think the passage will unfold and have meaning to us. Number one, I want you to see that he has difficulty. He has a difficult and lengthy topic And he recognizes that they are simply not ready. He has a difficult and lengthy topic. And he recognizes that they are not ready. And this seems to frustrate him. Look what it says. This Melchizedek, end of verse 10, and he's already begun teaching about this high priestly role of which we have much to say. He said, well, we have much to say. Second bullet point, he emphasizes in the second part of verse 11 that it is hard to explain. And thirdly, at the final point of verse 11, you have become dull of hearing. In the root meaning of the grammar of the word uh, for 
dull of meaning in the Greek. It has the idea, or the nuance at least, of the idea of being sluggish in their listening or lethargic. Listen, the idea here isn't that he wants to teach on something and he's not prepared. He's prepared. He's ready. He wants to go. He wants to prove to them how worthy our Lord Jesus is to be our high priest. And in fact, that they should not give up on following Jesus as they seem to be struggling with. The idea here isn't that the teacher isn't prepared or that he's interesting in his teaching. It is that the listener's attitudes have shifted and they don't want to hear it. They've become sluggish. They've got their ears filled with some kind of unholy wax. They just don't want to hear this teaching. It's interesting to me that he begins to remind them now that they have to return back to the beginning. Look what he says. Number two, he says he sees a discernible negative shift over time in their spiritual development. I think he's frustrated and concerned about the Hebrew believers because he sees a discernible and negative shift in them over the, over the course of time in their spiritual development. You get the idea that some time has gone by here. Now look what he says. First of all, he says in verse 11, you have become dull of hearing. You have become dull of hearing. The idea is that you haven't always been dull of hearing, but you are now. You have digressed. You, you're not doing as well as you used to do. Secondly, he says as we begin verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. So by this time, you've been taught, we've laid a foundation, you know the principles of following Christ, you understand how the Old Testament lays a foundation for the new covenant, embrace that, do not walk away from it, do not go back to Judaism. And he says, but instead, over this course of time, you ought, so there's time that's gone by. You know, I really think that he knew his audience very well. Uh, I was just uh, noticing a couple of verses in Hebrews that kind of lend itself to us this understanding that these Hebrews have been somewhere already spiritually that they're not at the time of this writing that they have gone backwards, not forwards. For example, look at chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. We're cutting in on the passage here. But he calls them beloved. So he knows them. He cares about them. But beloved, we are confident. Hebrews 6, 9 and 10. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. The idea is you need to live up to your salvation. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So he knows them. He's seen them in ministry. He knows that they need to to continue to follow through to live up to their salvation, the level of their understanding of what they do know. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10 and look at verses 32 to 34. 32 to 34 of Hebrews 10. So we're what we're doing here is we're showing that there's some time that has gone by and that the writer is aware that this group of people has been something that they're not today and he's scolding them. He's lovingly shaming them to wake up. Chapter 10, verse 32. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, illuminated I take that to be their point of salvation, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. 
partly verse 33, while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated, for you had compassion. Now, the New King James translation says, you had compassion on me in my chains. Your text might say you sympathized with those who were in prison, more of a plural term, not so much specifically to the writer. The New King James text says, for you had compassion on me in my chains, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. I mean, I was just thinking about that. That speaks of relationship. He knows what they've been through. He, no doubt, the writer of Hebrews helped ground them in their faith. And then they took a hit from it. He's going to remind them in chapter 12 that though they suffered for their faith, they haven't suffered to the point of shedding their blood yet like Christ did. So look what it says there in 34. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. So they have stood up for Christ. They have lived for Christ. They have matured in Christ. And though they haven't shed blood yet in their being persecuted for Christ, some of them have had a brick thrown through their window for it. These people have progressed. And now, back to chapter 5, he's shaming them that they ought to be farther along and that he wants to teach them on these deep truths, but they're dull of hearing. And so... Our frustrated teacher has a difficult and lengthy topic. He recognizes that they're just not ready. Secondly, he sees a discernible and a negative shift over time in their spiritual development and that they're not what they are today, what they used to be. Boy, that's convicting, isn't it? Thirdly, he sees a group of believers who are lacking maturity in following Christ. As he writes this group of people, he knows that they are demonstrating a lack of maturity In following Christ, look at the language here. Look at verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you ought to be teachers. You know, it's, and I don't think what he's saying here is that all of them should be Sunday school teachers or small group leaders because they all don't have the gift of teaching. For some of us, if we teach it, it'll be disastrous. But his point isn't that you have the gift of teaching. His point is that, that the knowledge The maturity, the spiritual growth in you should be that of a spiritual teacher. You should be of the level of a mature person, like a teacher. He goes on and then he says, but instead of this, instead of this, he says, you need someone to teach you, again, the first principles of the oracles of God. So he's reminding them, you ought to be teachers. His point isn't about giftedness, but it's about their level of understanding and their lacking of that. You need someone to teach you again. So they've already been taught in their past. They've had experience and and growth and they've even suffered for Christ already. But somehow he says, you got to go back. You need to know this is a football. And look what he says. Someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. Bible students debate, well, what's he talking about? Is this, is this the Old Testament, Old Covenant realities that laid the foundation for the New Covenant? Is this the parts of, of the Old Testament law that are fulfilled in Christ? Is this actually parts of the gospel? Is this, what is this that he's talking about? What's really interesting to me further than that is that he never even says what it is and he doesn't go and teach them. The, the, the principles, the beginning principles. You know what he does? 
He's going to finish this. He's going to warn him not to walk away from Christ. And then he's going to go ahead and teach him about Melchizedek, all the deep things that he says, I wish I could teach you. Isn't that interesting? And that's why I think that they knew a lot and they knew exactly what a football was, but it was kind of a loving shame. I want you to get back to the beginning. Pay attention to what I'm saying. You're not being who you ought to be and you're tempted to walk away from Christ. It's as though you need retaught the basic fundamental principle oracles. And I, I think that it comes out again in the, in the nuance of the Greek. Um, the first principles there in 12b where he says you need once again the first principles. Um, the idea there isn't that there's a book of these first principles and you need to reread the book. It's not what he's saying. It's not even saying reread the book and start at the beginning with the introduction even. Read who, read who the publisher was. No, it's like saying, here's the book of the basic principles of the oracle of God. And what he's saying, the nuance that comes out of the meaning of the words there is you need to review your ABCs. So before you read the book, let's just revisit the 26 letters of the, a, of the ABCs that are above the chalkboard in our classroom wall. He's shaming them. This is a football. Come on, wake up, get back to what you know is true. And so he says, you don't need to start the book over again. You simply need to review even your ABCs. And then he goes even further and he says, you have come to need milk and not solid food. Now this is getting really embarrassing. What he's saying is, you're a bunch of spiritual babies. You've got the body of an adult and you're sucking on a spiritual bottle. What is going on here? It kind of brings a picture to my mind of kind of funny when I used milk and cows on the dairy farm, um, we'd have the cows in milking them and one of us would peel out and start feeding calves and we had all our heifer calves, our little heifer calves in a side pen and we would get milk from the cows and put it in bottles in there, or formula that we would mix up and we would go, have all these bottles, like six bottles all mixed up at a time, these big square bottles with a big old rubber nipple on it and we would go feed calves and because I was in a hurry, I'd hold three at a time in my arms or two at a time in my arms and the calves would just bounce around and come in and they'd suck your jeans and suck your shirt and suck the bottles and fight over it and sometimes I'd be messing around and feeding the calves and I'd get over next to the fence that separated the heifer calves, these little calves, from a, a few big steers that the boss kept for to put it in the freezer. And these are like 1,000 pound, 800, 900,000 pound steers, big old maturing steers that are on grain and hay. And I'd be feeding over there and then one would stick his head over and he'd be reaching out because he smelled the formula and I'd take the bottle and stick it in that steer's mouth and oh man, he liked that. <laughs> but it was a joke. This big old animal with a bottle, sucking a bottle like a calf. It's the picture that he's shaming them with. Look, you ought to be much more mature. You ought to be on meat and you're on milk. Instead, it's, it's like a caricature. It's, it's to embarrass them to become motivated to wake up. I thought it would be wise for us and profitable for us to take just a minute because with this expression at the end of verse 12, he said, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. What are the marks of a milk feeding Christian? Are you a milk bottle Christian? What are the marks of a Christian who's on a milk bottle? We ought to be much farther along. First of all, let's continue to look at the text and we get a couple of ideas here. Number one, a milk bottle Christian is someone who has a limited ability to understand and apply God's word on their own. 
They cannot take the word of God and they cannot understand it and apply it to their own lives. Look what he says. For everyone who partakes, verse 13, only of milk, look what he says, is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. He's unskilled in the word of righteousness. Now, Bible students debate, what does he mean by that word of righteousness? What does that mean? Is that like the content of the word of God? Is that the, is that the dynamics or the, the structure of the gospel? You're unskilled in knowing that you are, what your justification is and the substitutionary death of Christ. He doesn't explain himself further. He just says, you're unskilled in the word of righteousness. So in spiritual truths, you're unskilled at taking the word of God and unfolding it and understanding it. So one of the marks of a milk bottle Christian is a limited understanding, a lack of skill to understand and apply God's word. Verse 13. Number two, they also have a limited ability to discern good from evil. A limited ability to discern good from evil. Look what he says in verse 14. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So people, he says, who have matured and who eat the meat of the word, the solid food of the word, they have used their senses, their spiritual senses, they have exercised them, they have matured, and it says they can discern good and evil. One of the marks of maturity, Paul said this in Philippians chapter 1 verse 9, one of the marks of discernment, of godly discernment, is that it, excuse me, one of the marks of spiritual maturity is godly discernment. Godly discernment is a mark of spiritual maturity. This verse though, these, this idea of being on milk instead of meat brought to my mind two very familiar passages where the apostle Paul in writing both to the the Corinthian believers and the apostle Peter in writing reference this same word picture that though you should be on meat, you're on milk. Let's turn to first Corinthians three and take a look at that very quickly here. And first uh, Corinthians three, one through three, look what it says. Paul writing to the Corinthian believers uses this same word picture and we'll be able to wrap up here very quickly. Thank you for your patience. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Now, we've just heard this language in Hebrews 5. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able to, for you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Like natural men? So you see what he's saying. In 1 Corinthians 3, he uses the exact same language as the writer of Hebrews. And he recognizes that a milk bottle Christian, there is lacking an obvious presence of the Holy Spirit. So number three, an obvious lack of spirit control. An obvious lack of spirit control. See, he's writing to Corinthian believers, calling them carnal or fleshly, but they're born again people. And he says to them, I couldn't write to you as mature because you are carnal. So equating babes and carnality in the passage here in 1 Corinthians 3, it's equal to be called carnal and to be called a baby was equal. See what he says? 
I couldn't write to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, verse 1, as to babes in Christ. They were carnal. They were babes. They were not showing spiritual maturity. Carnal means to be controlled by a natural fleshly desire to sin. Carnal means fleshly. So what happens when we get saved? We're forgiven. We're positioned in Christ. We have the ability to live victoriously over sin, but we still have a fleshly body that though in and of itself it's not evil, it's as though it has a mind of its own and it wants to keep on sinning. Somebody says to you, get off my porch. What do you want to do? You want to step in their tulips on your way off their porch. Whatever. I mean, you know, the flesh reacts. And the old man is there, this carnality. And you know, it looks to me a lot like a person who doesn't even know Christ. A carnal person looks a lot like a person who doesn't even know Christ, but they do, but they're a babe. They're on milk and they need to be on meat. Fourthly, back to our our notes, our list of what a milk bottle Christian looks like is they have a real need for the word of God to bring about spiritual transformation. They have a real need for the word of God to bring about spiritual transformation in their lives. And we won't even turn to First Peter, but it's there. It would be good exercise for you devotionally to review the notes and look up some of the verses. So what does a milk bottle Christian look like? They have a limited ability to understand and apply the word of God. They have a limited ability to discern good from evil. They, have an, they obviously lack spirit control in their lives. They, they're mouthy, they're tempered, they're angry, they might curse. And they have a real need for the word of God to bring about spiritual transformation so that they stop envying and strifing. And then they get on the sincere, pure milk of the word so that they may grow thereby, Peter says. The word of God is what grows you. You start with milk, but you're supposed to progress. We're on number four now of our frustrated teacher. He's frustrated with the arrested development of his class. Number four, he sees a lack of understanding of the basics of right doctrine and conduct. Let's go back to Hebrews 5, and we're looking at verse 13 again. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. And the question is, what is that word of righteousness in which he is unskilled? He sees, I see this, and the teacher sees this as a lack of understanding, at the least, of right doctrine and of conduct. I thought it would be interesting to see how other translations translated this idea of unskilled in the word of righteousness. The New King James and the ESV are, are parallel, unskilled in the word of righteousness. The NIV says, not acquainted, not acquainted with the word of righteousness. The New American Standard says, not accustomed to the word of righteousness. And the Net Bible changed it a little bit completely in the sentence, inexperienced in the message, not the word, but the message of righteousness. So what does it mean? At some level, these are the truths of the Christian life. These are the truths of basic Bible doctrine. And the idea is that there is moral instruction, there is spiritual instruction at hand here, and they have not matured in these And so they are only partaking of milk and they are unskilled. They have not developed. They are unacquainted with. They are unaccustomed to. They are inexperienced in the more mature things of doctrine that work themselves out in the conduct of our lives. And he calls them as a result at the end of that sentence, for he is a babe, this guy. 
He's a babe. And the word there is simply infant. It's a word that means infant that needs held and fed. Cannot take care of itself. Fourthly, I think he sees in them and he's frustrated by and challenging them to remind themselves of the basics because he sees a lack of spiritual effort on their part. He sees a lack of spiritual effort on their part. Verse 14, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age. They're mature. That is those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. They know how to use their spiritual knowledge and they exercise that and they are strong. But he sees in these Hebrew believers a lack of effort. They have not exercised their knowledge. The NIV uses the word there, trained. They have not trained themselves. In the Greek, it's the word that we get our English word gymnasium from. Gymnasium, in training, exercise, usage. First Timothy 4, 7 Paul challenged Timothy to exercise himself unto godliness. Use what you know. Develop what you are. Work out with it. Become mature. Don't be content to just take in the milk of the word. We conclude this morning with a self-diagnostic quiz. Obviously, we want to make application of the passage. What would the writer of Hebrews, if he were going to write to us about Melchizedek, would he start in and start teaching us about Melchizedek and how Jesus is a high priest like Melchizedek? And then he would stop all of a sudden and he said, ah, but wait a minute, church at Shenandoah Junction. I can't write this stuff to you. It's a long talk and it's hard to understand. And you have dull, sluggish ears. I don't know. It's easy to be critical of other people, but how about us? Have we been growing? Who's had a greater opportunity to grow spiritually than we have? And so our self-diagnostic quiz, number one, do I have an attitude of eagerness and interest in really knowing the Word of God? Do I have an attitude of eagerness and interest in really knowing the Word of God? Now, here's how you test this. You get your bulletin out. You don't do that. I'll do it. And you're reading your bulletin, and you look on the back, and this has been in, my rule is three weeks in the bulletin, but we've broken the rule on this. It's been in like five weeks. Sunday morning Bible study. You read the heading. Here's your test. When you read the heading and you see the phrase, Sunday morning Bible study, do you stop and skip and say, that's not what I'm looking for? You don't have to tell the truth. Don't lie, but just don't say anything. You see, that's what he's talking about here. A lack of eagerness, a sluggishness in your ears, some kind of unholy wax that when you recognize an opportunity on Sunday mornings to study the Bible at 9.30, why would I do that? I'd have to get here an hour early or more. No, instead, you're being eager. Uh, Do you see something like that and say, wow, I have a chance to get in the Word and let the Word change my life. You're mature. You want to get off of milk. And For example, we have Bill Slonecker just started today at 9.30, a book that he wrote on lessons from Bible characters, learning from the lives of Bible characters. It's a great study. He's a great teacher. It's at 9.30. The ladies' class is still continuing in the summertime at 9.30. You have an opportunity to just study the Word. Grab a cup of coffee, a Dunkin' Donut, sit down, study the Word. Are you eager to do that? Secondly, is dull of hearing a term that might describe me? Ask yourself. Self-diagnostic. Is dull of hearing 
Do I have any delight in listening to a radio program as I drive? Maybe Alistair Begg or David Jeremiah, and I'm listening to the Word of God. What's in my ears? What's going in my ears? Thirdly, is my spiritual maturity reflective of the amount of time I have been a Christian? In other words, some of you have been a Christian for eight years, and another person 18 years, and another person 38 years. The amount of time that you've been a Christian, is it reflective of your maturity? Or are you like a grown man who's still sucking a bottle at lunchtime? My mommy says it'll be hard on my teeth to eat a hamburger. Am I able to teach others the basics of the word of God? You say, well, I'm not a teacher. I agree. You don't have to be a teacher. But but could you in a conversation understand the word of God enough to study it? Some of us have been in the church and under teaching and in Sunday school classes for years, even decades. And we still have almost no ability to handle our Bible or to understand our Bible. We haven't memorized a Bible verse. We haven't grown very much according to the opportunities at hand. I'm not, I'm not putting you down. I'm just saying, people, this is a football. Don't miss the basics here. Grow. Finally, does the title milk bottle Christian describe me in any way? We've, we gave four characteristics there in the notes of a milk bottle Christian. Did any of that resonate with you? Um, so by God's grace, we can address these things and we'll continue to learn more and more. We are beyond out of time and especially the junior church people need a special gift from the parents. I'll, I'll, I'll try to remember to give them a special gift someday. Um, it's not your fault, parents, but thank you for your patience. Will you stand with me? Let's close in prayer. Forgive me for my abrupt conclusion here. Father, we need your help as we handle the word of God, as we encounter Christ and we grow in Christ and some of us have begun to grow and then we've stagnated, we've slacked off, we've taken detours, our ears are clogged and sluggish. Would you please awaken us so that we can grasp the deeper, greater things that are here for us in your word, that we would move on to maturity, that we would grow and develop and we would not be with some kind of a stuck position, unable to grow. Father, thank you for so many people who love to hear the word of God. I pray that you would bless them, each one of us, as we go with another week. Help us to live faithfully for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, The chairs do not have to be stacked today.